Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. The Nicene Creed. What do Christians believe? Lesson 2. The Existence of God. Christ is the principle of the unity of the church, as I was saying. From the very beginning, the church has been characterized by disagreement and dissension and schism and debates and conflicts and, dis- and, and so on. Uh, but what holds the church together is Christ. And what the unity of the church is Christ. And this I tried to illustrate by showing how Paul and the apostles addressed the question of the conversion of the Gentiles by appeal back to Christ. So Christ is the unity of the, uh, the principle of the unity of the church. And the creed is useful to us because it summarizes very succinctly who Christ is and what he taught. So the creed is not an additional source of revelation in addition to the Bible. The creed is not some sort of necessary supplement to the Bible. The creed is simply a summarization of the essential teaching of the Bible, which has to do with Christ and what he taught. So when we recite the creed, we are not in any way compromising the unique authority of the Bible. We're not trying to add anything alongside the Bible as if the Bible were by itself insufficient. But we're simply giving in summary form a kind of a Cliff Notes version, if you will, of, the, of what the Bible teaches so that we can be reminded always of the essentials. Because, of course, it's easy to get caught up in disagreements and points of difference. Uh, and before you, you know, before you realize it, uh, people are at odds with each other and they fight and they split up and they forget about the more important things that really hold them together. You know, I mean, imagine what it would be like if, for example, a husband and a wife forgot about the fact that they love each other and that they have a family together and they decided to divorce because they don't like the same movies or because they don't cheer for the same football team or because, you know, one of them likes Indian food and the other one doesn't. That would be ridiculous, right? It would, it would be getting caught up in a, in a relatively unimportant detail and losing the bigger picture. Well, the creed also helps us to remember what is the bigger picture here. Not everything that Christians disagree about is a matter of life and death. Some things are, but not everything that Christians disagree about is a matter of life and death, and not everything that Christians disagree about is worth, you know, uh, you know, um, butting heads over and causing all kinds of problems and conflicts. Uh, and the creed helps us to remember what are the really important things, what are the, the things that are the foundation of our faith. So that's why we have the creed. Now, the first line of the creed is what? What is the first thing that we say when we recite the creed? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, make, uh, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. So today what we're going to talk about is this first statement here. I believe in one God. Christianity has always been a religion that teaches the existence of God. And this is because, of course, the Bible teaches the existence of God. Now, this is something interesting, because the Bible, although it asserts the existence of God from the beginning to the very end, it never gives an argument for the existence of God. You will not find anywhere in the Bible an argument, you know, with premises and a conclusion, like you would find in a philosophy textbook, for the existence of God. The Bible was written by people who took the existence of God for granted. And what's interesting is that even in the most darkest and least hopeful passages in the Bible, even when the anguishes of the human spirit are most, you know, at the fore, the existence of God is never doubted. 
What is doubted by certain biblical writers at certain moments in their lives is whether or not God is who they thought he were, he was. For example, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes was a very controversial book in the Bible for a long time because reading it carefully, it seems to be teaching some things that are incompatible with what Christians believe. But I think that Ecclesiastes means to say only that if we limit ourselves just to appearances, if we just look at the world from a certain point of view, uh, you know, there are very many skeptical statements in Ecclesiastes to the extent that everything is vanity, everything is meaningless, the best that you can hope for in your life is to eat and to drink and to enjoy, you know, time with your wife, and then you die. Uh, there are lines in Ecclesiastes to the effect, you know, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous die all the same. Uh, they're in the hands of God all the same, but if God loves them or not, who can tell? So the, the Ecclesiastes presents a very kind of bleak perspective. And this is one thing that's fascinating about the Bible, is that the Bible is not one-dimensional. There's ups and there's downs. There's certain points of view and there are other points of view. There's very triumphalistic uh, language, and there's very also language of defeat, language that admits our, our weakness. If you read the Psalms, is David happy in every single psalm? No. Is he sometimes very distraught? Does he seem clearly depressed at times? You know, when he calls himself a worm and not a man, and when he says that God has forgotten him? Or for example, um, you know, the prophets, are the prophets always uh, cheery? Do they always have messages of God's providence and his, his uh, faithfulness and everything is going to be okay? No, sometimes the prophets tell you God is going to crush you. He's going to you know, stick his thumb on you and, and reduce you to dust. So the Bible is not naive. It's not one-dimensional. It recognizes that our experiences in the world are diverse. Sometimes we have what might be called experiences of consolation, where we're very confident in God's presence, and God is real to us, and we have a, a, a full conviction of his goodness towards us. And other times there are experiences of what is called desolation, where God feels very far away, and you're not sure what to think about him. You're not sure whether he's on your side anymore. You're not sure whether he hears your prayers, or if he does, whether he cares. And the Bible contains both of these types of things. The Bible contains, you know, the moments of certain figures when they're in a state of consolation, where they're very confident in God and where they have, you know, a zeal for life. And there are also moments of desolation that we find in the Bible. Um, but one thing that's interesting is that even in the moments of desolation, nobody in the Bible ever questions that God exists. Even in moments of absolute desolation, nobody questions that God exists. They only question whether God really cares about them or whether he's forgotten them and so on. So this is what's fascinating to me about the Bible. The, the, the Bible takes the existence of God for granted everywhere. Even in moments where particular authors seem to despair of God's goodness, they don't, they don't deny that he exists. On the other hand, we live in a society where very many people feel very confident in saying that God does not exist. And they don't have any, you know, any qualms or any worries about saying and thinking that. Um, and they even try to convince other people that God does not exist. For example, in, you know, in England, uh, the famous biologist Richard Dawkins had this um, uh, campaign, an advertising campaign, where he would plaster advertisements on the sides of their buses out there. And the advertisements would say things like, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and live your life. Right? For some people in the present day, the fact that God doesn't exist is a, is a point of therapy for them. They worry about God. Uh, they think that if God existed, this would somehow take away from the goodness of our lives. And so for them, it's, it's 
not only are they confident in saying that God exists, for them it's a good thing that God doesn't exist. This is a very strange situation because we live in a radically different world from the world you know, in which the biblical authors lived. And even throughout history, very many philosophers and uh, theologians, Christians but also non-Christians, were very confident that God exists. And they didn't think that it was a problem to prove that God exists with arguments, with philosophical reasons. So they gave very many different kinds of arguments to show that God exists. On the other hand, in the present day, um, very many people seem confident that there, is, there, is, there are no reasons to believe that God exists, that there is no argument for the existence of God, that uh, you cannot show that God exists. Uh, you may hear people saying things like there's no scientific proof that God exists and so on. So one of the things that we, one of the challenges that we have to reckon with as Christians, as people who confess the creed every Sunday but who live in a very different world compared to uh, the people that wrote the Bible, uh, is this question of the existence of God. Do we know that God exists? How do we know that God exists? You know, if somebody asks you, why do you believe that God exists? What can we tell them? How can we address this question thoughtfully with people who might have doubts or, or other uh, questions? Well, this is a, is a very fascinating question. It's a philosophical one. Of course, I teach philosophy at the university, so I'm, I realize I'm not teaching a university course. You know, you're, you are not my students signed up for Philosophy 101. So I'm going to try as much as possible to not turn this into a philosophical discussion. I want it to be real and relevant for all of you, because philosophers can get lost in, in you know, details and subtleties that are really, for the most part, unimportant in everyday life. So I'm going to try as much as possible to address this question, which is a philosophical one, does God exist? in a way that is nevertheless accessible and meaningful for somebody who is not taking a philosophy course at the university. Um, and if at, every, if at any point I'm losing you, just feel free to raise your hand or say something, hey, Stephen, come back down to reality. Um, we have to ask this question, what is God? Right? Because a lot of people don't believe in God, or they say at least that they don't believe in God. But if you were to ask them, what do you mean by God? Do they mean exactly the same thing that Christians historically have meant? You know, for example, if we say that we believe in God and someone, you know, across the street here in Carefree says they don't believe in God, how do we know that we're talking about the same thing? It's because we use the same name, right? If I say that Jeffrey is my friend and you say Jeffrey is not your friend, does that mean we're talking about the same person just because they have the same name? Are there more than one, is there more than one person named Jeffrey in the world? Yeah. Right? So just because Jeffrey's my friend and you say that Jeffrey isn't your friend, it doesn't mean we're talking about the same person. So I say that I believe in God, somebody else says that he doesn't believe in God. That doesn't mean we're talking about the same thing. Because maybe what I mean when I say that I believe in God is not what he has in mind. Maybe he is confused about what Christians are talking about when they say God. And I think actually that a lot of times you'll find in discussions between Christians and atheists and agnostics that very many people are confused by what the Christian religion means when it says that it affirms the existence of one God, the creator of heaven and earth. You know, um, sometimes you will have atheists who mock Christian beliefs and they say, oh, believing in God is like, you know, believing in an invisible teapot that is orbiting the earth, you know, and it, it orbits at a constant rate. Uh, and, you know, I believe that there's this invisible teapot that's orbiting the earth somewhere in space. And of course, if you go out in space, you're never going to find it. But that's no disproof against me because the teapot is invisible. So naturally, if you're in space, you wouldn't see it anyway. You know. They have the idea that when we talk about God, we're talking about something that if you were to just go in the right place in space, you would find him. 
right? There's this story about uh, this Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin. The story is probably not true because actually Yuri Gagarin was a, a, as far as anybody knows, was a faithful Eastern Orthodox Christian. But the story goes that when he was, you know, he was the first man sent out into space, he goes out into space and he says, you know, from out in orbit, he says, I see no God up here. Again, this is probably a fanciful story because Gagarin himself was an Orthodox Christian, so he probably would have spoken like that. But think actually about what is being said. Do we actually as Christians believe that if you were to go into space somewhere, you would find God? Do we think that God is something that is like just hiding somewhere in the universe and the only reason we can't see him is because we're not where he is? Historically, Christians have believed that God is everywhere. Right? You remember the psalm. If I go down into Hades, you're there. If I go ascend up into heaven, you're there. When we say that God is everywhere, we mean that he's not some one thing, right? I can only be in one place at a time. This couch can only be in one place at a time. The planet Earth can only be in one place at a time. When we say that God is everywhere, we obviously mean that he's not some one particular thing, right? That's localized in space and that if you were to just, you know, assume the right position, he would become visible to you. So a lot of times people are confused by what we mean when we say that we believe in God. They have the idea that belief in God is belief in some grandfather, you know, some old man with a beard who lives in outer space and he overlooks us. Um, and now and again, when you pray, if he, if he happens to hear you because his hearing is bad, if he happens to hear you, then he'll, he'll shoot down lightning bolts and he'll smite your enemies. That is not what Christians believe. The Christian God is not something that you will find if you just go into the right area. If you just find the right space, he's some individual thing that will appear, you know, in your visual field and you'll be able to find him. That is not what Christians mean by God. So, once we can clear out of our mind these confused preconceptions about what God is, then we can ask the question, okay, let's set to the side every preconceived idea that we have about God. What actually are Christians talking about when they say that God exists? What, are they actually, what do they actually refer to? And as I was saying, throughout the history of, throughout the history of philosophy, throughout the history of Christian theology... <coughs> Uh, philosophers and theologians have given many arguments by which they try to show that God exists. Um, there are a lot of different arguments. I'm only going to present one, which I think is uh, compelling and which I think is easy to understand. But there are very many other sorts of arguments. And anybody who is interested in this topic, there are so many resources available these days that, you know, um, if you have an interest in why people believe that God exists, there are a lot of different books you can read. Uh, but I will give one argument. Now, this argument makes use of what philosophers call the principle of sufficient reason. Now, that sounds very complicated and, and difficult to understand. What does that mean? What is the principle of sufficient reason? There are different ways of formulating it, but the basic idea behind this principle of sufficient reason is that when we have something, when, when something is the case, when we have some kind of fact, right, there's a sufficient reason for why that fact obtains. Okay, so for example, if you, um, you know, let's say that you are camping, okay, and you're cooking beans in a pot over the fire, all right, and you stick your finger in the beans and you burn your finger because the beans are hot, all right, and I were to ask you, why are the beans hot? What would you answer? I asked, why are the beans hot? Yeah, because they're cooking on the fire, because the fire is under them, right, the fire is heating them. All right, the principle of sufficient reason says that for anything that we can point to, there's going to be some sufficient reason for why it obtains. Why are the beans hot? Well, because the fire is heating them up. Okay, why did you burn your finger when you stuck, stuck your finger in the beans? Because the beans are hot. 
right? For everything that happens, for every fact, for every reality that obtains, there's a sufficient reason for why it obtains. For example, why do you know how to speak English? Why do you understand English? Yeah, because you were taught it as a child by your parents, by whoever it is that took care of you, by people at school. Uh, why did you come to church this morning? Well, because you woke up and you thought that it was Sunday morning. You happen to be right about that, and you know that there's church on Sunday mornings, right? Why is it that when you turn the key in your car, the engine uh, starts? Well, there's this long process involved, right? But basically what happens is that there are explosions, and, you know, I'm not a mechanic. Somebody would know better than me. But basically the idea is it's not just chance. It's not just this lucky happening that every time you turn the key in your car, the engine turns on, right? There's this entire physical process that takes place, and every part of that process is explained, right, by something else. There's a whole chain of causes that lets you know why things are happening. For example, when we do science, all right, and you're, tr you're testing out uh, medicines, you know, to try to treat a disease, you are assuming that certain kinds of medicines are going to have certain effects on the human body. Some of them could be good, some of them could be bad. Right? So you're assuming that the universe is linked, you know, in terms of cause and effect. You're assuming that why things happen, you know, there's an explanation for it. And if you can discover this explanation, then you can use things to your advantage. If I can discover, for example, that water hydrates, then whenever I'm thirsty, I can drink water. Right? There was probably some very primitive man who made this first <laughs> discovery, and he realized, oh, this clear stuff that flows in the ground, this is good to drink. It made me feel good. <laughs> And then the first person, for example, who ate, you know, certain kinds of mushrooms in the woods probably realized that they were not good because he got sick. And then he realized, okay, I cannot do this because these will cause me to be sick. All right, the principle of sufficient reason says that uh, for everything that happens, there's a sufficient reason why it happens. All right, things don't just happen out of nowhere. Things don't just take place completely randomly and without a cause. There's a reason why things happen. Why did you get sick? Well, because you were in contact with somebody else who was sick. Why did you burn your finger? Because, you know, the food was hot. Why did the car turn on? Because I turned the key. Why did the car turn off? Because the battery died or because I'm out of gas and so on and so forth. For everything that happened, there's a sufficient reason. Now, we can also distinguish, here's a more, so there's a principle of sufficient reason. That's one principle, right? Here's a, a more complicated one, slightly more complicated, but I think it's still, it's still accessible. There are qualities that we have that belong to us in virtue of what we are, and there are qualities that we have that belong to us in virtue of outside causes. Now, this is very abstract, but I'm going to try to make it clear, okay? As human beings, for example, we have the capacity to learn a language. Do cats have the capacity to learn language, for example? Can you, get your, can you train your cat to speak to you in English? No. Right? Could you train your cat to do bench presses in the gym? No. Right? Uh, could, you, <laughs> could you train your cat to cook a meal for you instead of you preparing its meal all the time? No. Right? There are some things that the cat, simply in virtue of what it is, it cannot do. It cannot learn a language. It cannot you know, perform certain physical movements. It cannot engage in certain complicated tasks. We as human beings have capacities that belong to us simply because we're human beings. We have the capacity to learn language, right, in the normal case, with exceptions. There are some persons who, because of something that went wrong in the process of their development, they don't have this capacity, or maybe it's very impaired, or whatever. But in the normal case, the human being has the capacity to learn a language, right? 
Another thing that happens in the normal case, the and in the normal case, the human, uh, the human being is um, supposed to live above above the water, right above the ground. Could you, as a human being, live underwater like fish do? Right. If you tried it, you would learn very quickly that this is not your natural environment, right? In the normal case, human beings require socialization by other human beings in order for them to develop properly. All right, could you leave a baby in the woods and it develop into a normal animal or into a normal human being? No, it needs other people. It needs parents, it needs a community, it needs to be taught and developed, right? Other animals are not like that. Some animals, as soon as they're born, they go out into the world and they take care of themselves. But human beings are not like that. Human beings are such that they need to be helped by other people throughout the long course of their development, you know, 18 years, 25 years, 30 years, whatever it is, they constantly need help from other people so that they can become individuals, all right? That's what it is to be a human. Here's a question. It belongs to human beings by nature to be capable of learning language, all right? This is a property, this is a, a possibility that human beings have simply in virtue of being human beings. We have the capacity to learn language. Now, all of you speak English, right? I'm assuming that you do because you're here and you look like you understand me. All of you speak English. Do all of you know how to speak English by nature? No. No. Was there a time when you didn't know how to speak English? Yeah, before you learned how to speak, for example. Are there other human beings who do not know how to speak English? Yeah. yeah. Right, so being a human being is sufficient for, for having the capacity to learn language in the normal case. But being a human being is not sufficient for knowing how to speak English. All right, knowing how to speak English is not something that you, it's not a quality that you have simply in virtue of what you are as a human being. Where do you need to get this quality then? If you don't have it simply in virtue of what you are, you have to get it from somewhere else, right? So you learn how to speak English, like I said earlier, because your parents taught you or whoever it was that took care of you as a child, your teachers at school. For example, human beings have the capacity to learn how to perform complicated mathematical equations. All right, but are you born knowing them? No, you have to learn them from somebody else. All right, so there are capacities, there are qualities that we have simply in virtue of the fact that we're human. But there are qualities that we can only have if we receive them from outside of us. Right. In either case, there's an explanation. There's a sufficient reason why is this thing the way that it is. But that sufficient reason can either be the nature of that thing, or it can be something outside of it, an external cause, so to speak. So why is it that we are capable of learning language? Well, it's, it's a sufficient answer to that question to say because we're human beings. Right? We're not gorillas, we're not cats, we're not dogs, we're human beings. And it's sufficient to be a human being so that you can have the capacity to learn language. However, if we ask the question, why do we know how to speak English? We cannot say because we're human beings, right? Because there are human beings who don't know. So in order to answer the question, why do we know how to speak English? We have to appeal to something outside of us. We cannot simply say because we're human beings. Well, because someone else taught us, right? So when we come up with explanations for why things are the way they are, we can either say because that's what it is to be that sort of thing. You know, the thing's nature is a sufficient explanation or we can appeal to external causes. For example, let me give another example. We can ask the question, why is um, you know, H2O, dihydrogen monoxide, why is H2O either a solid, a liquid, or a gas? Why is it either one of those three things? 
Well, because that's just what it is to be material, right? That's all matter comes in those three states, solid, liquid, and gas. But when we ask, why is this cup of water here liquid? We cannot say just because it's water, right? Because water can be frozen, water can be, water can evaporate. We have to say because the room that it's in is at a certain temperature, right? And at that temperature, water is liquid, right? So notice what happens. If we ask, why is this, uh, why is water, you know, either solid, liquid, or gas, it's enough to say just because it's a map, it's matter, it's material, you know, it's a physical thing, and all material realities are in one of those three states. But if we ask, why is this water frozen, or why is this water in a liquid state, it's not enough just to say because it's matter. Is there matter that is not frozen? Yeah. Is there matter that is not in a gaseous state? <laughs> is there matter that is not liquid? Yeah, right? So we cannot simply say because it's matter. We have to say, well, because of outside factors, namely the temperature of the room that it's in, being such as it is, you know, it activates this potential to be in a liquid state or whatever. So I think you guys can kind of get the idea here. There are, you know, things have a multiplicity of qualities. Some of these qualities, some of these properties they have simply in virtue of what they are. And some of these properties they have in virtue of outside causes. I am capable of learning language simply because I'm a human being. But I know English because my parents taught me it, or the people at school taught me it. Right? I have a capacity to speak simply because I'm a human being with a normal functioning you know, uh, vocal cords and so on. But I'm actually speaking now because the occasion calls for it, because I'm choosing to. Right? So there are qualities that we have simply in virtue of what we are, and there are qualities that we have in virtue of something else. Now here's the kicker. All right? This is the important point. There is some quality that everything has, but it doesn't have it in virtue of what it is. And that is existence. Okay, this is the most, this is really where it gets the most abstract, so I'm going to try to belabor the point. This chair has numerous qualities. Okay, it's made of plastic or whatever it is, it's green, it's in a certain shape. I don't have any of those qualities. I am not made of plastic, I'm not green, I don't share the same shape or the same weight or whatever as the chair. However, there is something that both of us have in common. I exist and the chair exists. Right? The existence, this is the important thing. Everything in the world exists. Right? There is nothing that does not exist because, you know, if, if it's there for you to talk about it, then it has to exist. Right? Otherwise, it would just be nothingness. Everything in the world exists. This is a quality that everything has. But now let's ask this question. Do things exist simply in virtue of what they are or in virtue of something else? You all have an idea in your mind of what it is to be a chair, right? A chair is a certain kind of artifact. You take certain materials uh, and you form them in, in such a way that you can sit on them. That's what it is to be a chair. Okay, so you have an idea of the nature of a chair. Does that mean that there are any chairs in the world? Have chairs always existed? No, there was a first moment, right, when there was a chair, right? So you can know what a chair is, but that doesn't mean that any chairs exist, all right? There's nothing about the nature of a chair that demands that chairs exist. Think of animals that have gone extinct. For example, the dodo bird, right? We have some notion of what the dodo bird is. We know what it is to be a dodo bird. We know the nature of a dodo bird. But are there any more dodo birds? No, they're extinct, okay? And have dodo birds always existed? No, there was a first moment when they, you know, when they were created or whatever. So, there is nothing about the nature of a dodo bird that demands that it exists. There's nothing about the nature of chairs that demands that there are chairs. 
Was there a first moment when human beings came into existence? Yeah, have human beings always existed? No. All right, is it at least conceivable in principle that all human beings could cease to exist? Is there anything impossible in that scenario? No. We all know what a human being is. We all are human beings, all right? So we know what the nature of a human being is. But we also know that there's nothing about the nature of a human being that demands that it exists, all right? There's nothing impossible about there being no human beings. There's nothing inconceivable about there being no more human beings. Think, for example, of cats. All right, I, I use the example of cats all the time because I love cats, but I'm allergic to them, so I can't have any. So I, I, I live in this tortured state where I, you know, I want what I can't have. Right? Think, think, for example, of cats. Everybody knows what a cat is. You know, cats, and you could even, if, I wanted, if you wanted to, you could describe for me you know, all the qualities that make up cats. Right? They're feline, they're uh, mammals, they're carnivores, they're normally of a certain size, they don't bark, they meow. Right, they're normally not very social, you know, they have various sort of personality traits that distinguish them from other animals and so on. You can know all of that about cats. Do you know that any cats actually exist just by knowing all that? No, is it conceivable that right now there could be no cats anywhere in the world? I mean, it would be surprising, obviously, but is it impossible? No, there's nothing about the nature of cats that demands that there be cats. There's nothing about the nature of human beings that demands that there be human beings. There's nothing about the nature of chairs that demands that there be chairs in the world. There's nothing about the nature of cell phones that demands that there be cell phones, right? All cell phones could cease to exist at some point. Earlier, they didn't exist. So this is, this is what's interesting. Things exist. I exist, for example. Cats exist. Chairs exist. But there is nothing about those things, given their natures, that demands that they exist, right? It's perfectly compatible with the nature of cats that there be no cats. At some point, there were no cats. God forbid it, but maybe in the future there will be no cats, right? Um, that means what? According to the principle of sufficient reason, right? If we cannot account for why a thing is the way it is in virtue of what it is, in virtue of its nature, then we have to appeal to what? An external cause, right? So we have to appeal to an external cause, all right? So if we're going to explain why do I exist, why does the planet Earth exist, why do cats exist, why do uh, chairs exist, why does anything exist, really? We have to appeal to something that gives it existence, right? The cat exists in virtue of something else. Now, notice what's happening here. This thing, right, in order for it to be a proper explanation, it cannot be like everything else. It cannot be such that its nature is not sufficient for it to exist, right? Because then we would just be asking the same question about it, right? If I were to ask, for example, why did, the, why did this building burn down? Well, because somebody took a torch to it. Okay, and then I ask, well, why is the torch lit? Well, because they lit it from another torch. <laughs> right, that really doesn't answer the question. We need to get to something that does not need to be lit by something else. Right, if you want to explain, I'll give the, another example. Suppose we're back camping again, and you're cooking the beans. The beans in the pot are hot. And I ask you, why are the beans hot? And you say, well, because the pot is itself hot, and it's transferring the heat to the beans. Okay, but I can also ask, why is the pot hot? Ah, well, the pot is hot because the fire is heating it. And then I ask, okay, well, why is the fire hot? What makes the fire to be hot? At this point, we've reached a different kind of thing, right? The fire is not hot in virtue of something else. The fire is hot simply in virtue of what it is to be fire. Now, it's true, the fire was not always lit, so somebody had to ignite it, but nothing makes the fire to be hot. The fire just is hot on its own. That's what it is to be fire. The pot is not hot on its own. 
the pot is, you know, if the pot were hot on its own, then when you bought it at the store, you would burn your hand, right? The pot has to be made hot. Normally, it just takes whatever the temperature of the room that it's in, right? That's what it is for it to be a pot. In order for the pot to be hot, you have to put it on the fire. And in order for the beans to be hot, you have to put them in the pot, right? The beans are not hot when you buy them at the store. They're not hot when they come out of the ground. They're only hot when something else heats them up, okay? Now, in order for us to explain why the beans are hot, we have to stop our explanation with something that is just hot on its own, that is not made hot by something else, that simply possesses heat in virtue of what it is, right? Let's say that you were cooking beans in a pot, and then you put that pot in another pot, and then you put that pot in another pot, and then you put that pot in another pot. These pots are getting very large now. And you put that pot in another pot, and then you put that pot in another pot. Are those beans ever going to heat up if you have just pots? No, right? Because what you need is something that is hot on its own, not something that has to be made hot by something else. So also, when we want to explain why do things exist, we need to appeal to something that exists on its own, not something that is caused to exist by something else, because then we haven't answered the question. You guys understand what I'm saying? When we ask, why do cats exist? Why do human beings exist? Why do chairs exist? Why does this world exist? Why does the you know, solar system exist? We can imagine that all these things don't exist. We have to answer that question by saying, well, it receives its existence from something else. And this something else simply exists on its own. For that thing, you know, its nature and its existence are the same, right? What it is and the fact that it exists are one and the same. There is no distinction between what it is and the fact that it exists. So we have to appeal to something that simply possesses existence on its own in a kind of an original and paradigmatic way so that everything else can possess existence in a borrowed or derivative way. Just like fire is hot on its own and it makes it possible for beans to be derivatively hot, you know, just like, for example, um, you know, uh, the sun is originally luminous, it produces light on its own, and that makes it possible for the moon to reflect light onto the earth at nighttime, right? The moon by itself is not luminous, right? The moon only has light because it reflects it from the sun, but the sun doesn't get its light from somewhere else, it just produces it. In the same way, everything that exists and that could conceivably not exist has to receive its existence from something which simply exists in virtue of what it is. It's just pure existence. What it is and the fact that it exists are one and the same. And this is what Christians throughout history, this is what philosophers throughout history and theologians refer to as God. We are referring to that, you know, that mysterious whatever it is, because we don't know exactly what it is just yet. We're just, you know, starting the argument. We're referring to that in virtue of which everything else exists. This thing exists in an original way, in a paradigmatic way. It possesses existence on its own, just like fire possesses heat on its own. And it gives existence to everything else, all right? And without this thing, nothing else would exist. So that's what Christians are referring to by God. So we know that God exists then, okay? So we have some reason for believing that God exists. Well, because this world exists, it doesn't have to. So that means that it receives existence from something else. And this thing, this original thing, simply has existence on its own. It doesn't receive it from anywhere else. It's an original existing thing, so to speak. But now let's ask the question, what is this thing? What more can we know about it? Okay, so we've, we've shown that God exists. Now we have to show what is he like. And once more, I'm going to uh, continue with my philosophical method, but I'm going to show that this philosophical conception of God is consonant with the way that the Bible talks about God. 
right? So some people worry, you know, when, when you do too much philosophy and they, you know, they hear philosophers talk about God, uh, there's this line from the, the theologian Pascal. Uh, Pascal, you know, in his journal one day, he writes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of the philosophers, right? So he was despairing with the way the philosophers were talking about God. He said, no, not that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the one I want, right? Not the God of the philosophers. I don't agree with Pascal, even though he is obviously a greater figure than I am. I don't agree with him on this point because I think actually that the God of the philosophers, so to speak, and the God that the Bible talks about are not so different after all. And I'm going to try to show this. I'm going to try to show this harmony between what philosophy can teach us about God and what the Bible says about God. So in the first place, we can note that God is all-powerful. Okay, this is the first thing that we should know. God is all-powerful. The Bible makes statements like this all the time. And I would have somebody read, for example, um, from Zechariah chapter... Well, I will read this one, and somebody else can open the Bible to Mark chapter 10, verse 27. And here we will have statements about the all-power of God, the omnipotence of God, as the philosophers call it. Zechariah chapter 8, I'm, I will read this one, chapter 8. Uh, somebody else read Mark chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 27. Right? So here we will have a, a quote straight from the mouth of Christ, Mark chapter 10, verse 27. Yes, Raymond. Just the one verse. Yeah, you can read just the one verse. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. So notice what Jesus is dealing with here. He's addressing a situation, a question raised to him by the disciples. The disciples are perplexed. You know, if, if this is how things stand, then who can be saved? Um, and Jesus responds to their question by affirming the omnipotence of God, right? The all-powerfulness of God. He says, with man, it seems impossible, all right? But not with God, because with God, all things are possible. So God is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. There are no limits to his power. Everything is possible for him. And in uh, Zechariah chapter 8, here's what's happening. The, the, the Christians, or the, the Christians, they're not yet Christians. The Jews have returned from exile, okay? And they're talking about rebuilding the temple because they've returned from exile in uh, Babylon. And they're rebuilding the temple. And notice what the prophet Zechariah says to them about this prospect of rebuilding the temple. Uh, Zechariah says this, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Right, so they're talking about rebuilding the temple. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. <clears throat> Thus said the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. People are not going to die of young age anymore. They're going to live to be a, a fine old age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Here's the important verse. If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice what's, what God is saying here. 
Just because you cannot conceive of how something can happen, does that mean that it should be the same for me? No, he is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is beyond the range of his possibilities. So the Bible teaches clearly God is all-powerful. And this is exactly the conclusion that we get philosophically as well. For example, there are limits to what I can do. I have a certain range of powers, but there are also limits to what I can do. All right, as a human being, I am capable, for example, of communicating in written language. All right, I wrote my dissertation at about 115,000 words. It's quite a long book, right? No dog can do that. All right, so I, I can do something that a dog can't do. But there are things that a dog can do that I can't. I can't run as fast as a dog. I can't, you know, kill animals with my teeth. I can't hunt as well as dogs can. I can't smell things as well as they can, right? So there are things that a dog can do that I can't do, and vice versa. I have a range of powers, but a dog has a different range of powers. And if it came down to it, I wouldn't want to get into a wrestling match with certain dogs, right? I would rather run away. Right, there are things that I can do that fish cannot do. All right, I can talk with someone and hold a conversation. I can admire the beauty of the ocean, for example. But a fish can live in it, and I can't. Right, there are things that fish can do that I cannot do. I have a limited range of powers. The fish has a limited range of powers. Now let me ask you a question. God, who created everything, you know, who is the cause of the existence of everything, he is equally capable of producing fish as he is of producing human beings. He is equally capable of producing planets as he is of producing atoms and, and you know, subatomic particles. Everything that exists whatsoever, everything that we know is possible, is only possible because he can cause it. So he also is all-powerful on philosophical grounds. As the source of everything, as the cause of the everything that exists, because everything traces back to him, whether it's actual or just a possibility, everything is from him, so he is all-powerful. Right? The whole range of possibilities that we recognize, everything that we think is conceivable, is only possible because he can cause it. Right? So he, on philosophical grounds and on biblical grounds, we understand that God is all-powerful. The Bible says that God is all-powerful, especially in the context of salvation, because here people are liable to lose their hope. They get caught up in the way things are happening now, and they can't imagine a brighter future. Okay, so the Bible teaches us, with man it seems impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the interest of the Bible in the all-power of God, in the omnipotence of God, is from the point of view of salvation. But philosophically, we can also establish that God is all-powerful just from the fact that he is the cause of everything. All right, so if he is the cause of everything that happens, that must mean that he's capable of everything. He's capable of causing this, he's capable of causing that, because everything owes its existence to him. We also know that God is omniscient, right? Just as he, not, as he is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he is also omniscient or all-knowing. There is nothing that he doesn't know. He doesn't have false beliefs about things. He cannot be surprised by things. Um, he's all-knowing. And if we want to read the... Uh, God is all-knowing. We can open up to Psalm, ver uh, Psalm 139. This is the, the classic Old Testament statement of the omniscience of God. Psalm 139. So why don't I read it, and you guys follow along. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, even the night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. So notice what the psalmist is saying here. God knows everything. There is not a portion of the world where you can hide from God. God even knows what you will do. He says, before the word is on my, on my lips, you know it. God sees us everywhere we are. There is no place where we can hide from his presence. And this is also something that we can appreciate philosophically because, of course, God as the cause of everything. Cannot, nothing can be hidden to him. There is nothing that exists in the world, in the world, in this universe of ours, that is not caused to exist by God. So that means that nothing is beyond him. Nothing is, is uh, beyond his sight. All right. I can know, for example, what goes on in my house. And I can know, for example, if I arrange the, the furniture in my house in a certain way, I can know where things are. But I don't know what's going out on the street because I'm not there. Right? My vision is limited. I'm only, I only have power over what goes on in my house. But the whole universe is God's house, so to speak. He arranges it all. And just for example, like a, a, you know, a talented musician knows what he's doing at all times and he knows exactly what the song is going to sound like because he knows where he's leading it. That's how God is with this world that he's created. He knows where it was. He knows where it is now. He knows where it's going because he sustains it at every moment. He's causing it to be. He's leading it in a certain direction. So we know that God also is all-knowing, both on biblical and on philosophical grounds. Now, I don't have very much time. I, I, I have to cut it short here. But I would like to um, ask this question. I've spoken philosophically about God. Okay, I've, I've argued that God exists. I've given you a reason for believing that God exists. I've given you, in at least two cases, a characterization of what God is like. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient. Um, we might also ask the question, okay, but what about the experience of God? How do I experience him? Now, there's a long discussion here to have about ways in which God is experienced and also a discussion about the mystical tradition in the church and so on. I'm not going to enter into any of that because in addition to all those things, there's also a very simple way. I argued that God is the cause of everything that exists. Now, how many of you chose to exist? How many of you chose to exist right now? <laughs> Canon Dart says that he did. But... I decided to wake up this morning when I was doing that. <laughs> so I don't mean to say how many of you agree with your existing now. That would be a different question. I mean, how many of you exist right now as a result of something you've accomplished? <laughs> yeah, no. This is an interesting fact. We exist all the time, right? There's not a moment where we're not existing. But... None of us did anything to choose to exist. None of us did anything to accomplish the fact that we're existing. Our existence, our reality, our life is what in philosophy is called a given. Right? It's something that's there, but it's, it's not a result of our efforts. Now, we can you know, have the illusion that we are these autonomous and self-existing creatures. You know, nothing can touch us. We are impervious to harm. We are you know, self-made men, so to speak. We are responsible for everything about ourselves. But is that any of that true? I mean, isn't it true that 
the slightest thing can go wrong and we die in a second. You know, don't people drop dead all the time? Things flying from the sky or, you know, some neurons in your brain don't uh, fire correctly and it's over. The game is over. We are extremely fragile, but we have this illusion about ourselves that we're somehow self-sufficient. You know, just because we're not thinking about the, the givenness of our life, the fact that, it, that we're passive, we labor under the illusion that, you know, we just exist as a matter of course and then that's it. But actually our existence is a gift. And if you want to know in a very unspectacular and unexciting, but nonetheless real way, what is it like to experience God? Well, you're doing it right now. Think about the fact that you exist. It is not your own choice that you exist now. You did not accomplish your own existence now. And neither can you do anything to preserve it for a second. How many of you can do something to secure and to ensure that you will exist five seconds from now? What could you possibly do? You would have to exist already to do something. Right? Isn't that why people worry about death? Because they realize that they have no power over their life. Because they realize that they don't have, their existence is not up to them. It's given to them as a gift. So if you want to know what is it like to experience God, you don't have to go into space, you don't have to go looking for him in the cosmos. Right now where you're sitting, this is what it is like to experience God. Simply to receive your existence as a gift and to be given this entire world, which offers so many wonderful things for your enjoyment, if only you use them correctly, uh, which offers the joy of friendship with other people, food and drink, and as the psalm says, everywhere declares the glory of God.